evening in Romans the twelfth chapter. Romans twelve, verse one through fifteen, verse thirteen. This is what we call a practical section of Romans, where he gets down to talking to you and me as self and our responsibility. And so, just to label this, the practical section of Romans, chapter 12, 1 through 15, 13. Now, he begins here in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, uh, presenting foundational principles of consecration. And I've got an outline here of what we will cover tonight, hopefully. Foundational principles of consecration as we consecrate ourselves to God. There's five things that need to be said about this text as it deals with consecration or holiness. Number one is the appeal to consecration. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Notice the, uh, the plural. God has more than one bestowal of mercy. You notice that? If I beseech you in view of the mercies of God and the manifold bestowal of the mercy of God. Now the manifold <coughs> nature of the mercy of God is the appeal that he makes to consecration. He says, consecrate yourself before God. And the appeal uh, to the thing to which he appeals is what God has done, not what God will do. He doesn't say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the coming judgment that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's talking about what God has already do, done and is doing in regard to his mercies. The only thing that will motivate you, me, or anyone out of our self-complacency and, and cause us to step out in the fearful area of uh, uncertainty is this consecration because of the mercies of God. What you and I do is in view of the mercies of God. God has showed his mercy toward man, to, toward you and me. And when you evaluate that and see the benefits in all of the mercies of God upon you, then you are learning to consecrate yourself and willing to consecrate yourself unto God. Service unto God is out of love, not out of uh, uh, some kind of a command. We obey God because of His love, His mercy. And so, number one uh, in this text is the appeal to consecration. I beseech you, by the mercies of God, the manifold mercies of God, the many mercies of God, in other words. <clears throat> and the thing, uh, the, uh, and the appeal that he makes to the thing which he appeals is what God has done and not what God will do. He didn't say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, of the coming judgment that you present your bodies. It's the, uh, uh, I mean, that will be the, uh, be an uh, insignificant motivation. It might get the job done now, but it won't get the job done continually. It might fear someone into consecrating themselves for the moment or for the, uh, a little while. But it is not a staying thing. It's not a stable thing that's going to stabilize you. What's going to keep you going? The continual awareness of the mercies of God. The only thing that will cause us to continue when God's not looking, and we get that concept occasionally that God's not looking, and the only thing that's going to uh, uh, continue when God's not looking is the mercies of God. I don't want to offend him because of his mercies toward me. 
I don't want to try to hide something from him because of his mercy, because of his many manifold mercies. That's what Paul is saying. Here's the appeal to consecration. <clears throat> In spite of the fact that he's always looking, do we forget that sometimes? We certainly do. Uh, The thing that motivates a person to continue in love is love, isn't it? Love is the motivating factor. It always has been, always will be. And so he is asking us to consecrate ourselves unto God because of the, in view of, in remembrance, in acknowledgement of the mercies of God Almighty. What he's done for you. What he will do for you what he is doing in you. Because the thing that motivates a person to continue in holiness is the love of God. It isn't the commandment keeping. That won't get the job done. It's the love of God. And the love of God is presented as his mercies here. All right, and then secondly, there's the act of con uh, consecration. First of all, as I got it on the board here, outlined for you, the appeal to consecration, and now number two, the act of consecration. Uh, he stated, he said here, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, now we want to dwell a little bit on the wordage there and what those st statement implies, what it means, what it's telling you and I. <clears throat> He said to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That phrase has in it three statements about this act. And here they are. Number one, it is a voluntary act. And that's what God wants. A voluntary act. He says present. He uses the word present. That makes it a voluntary act. That makes it something that I volunteer to do. Remember Isaiah 6, verse 1 through 6? Isaiah is shown uh, the glory of God Almighty. You can read about it, what he saw. It ain't going to mean a whole lot to you because you didn't see it. But in Isaiah's case, it made a profound uh, consecration in him. Because what he saw was uh, just unbelievable, as it were, in regard to the glory of God. When he saw it, <coughs> he understood what God had uh, done for him in his mercy. God commissioned an angel to go down with, a, with the tongs and the hot coal off of the altar and put it on his tongue because Isaiah was overwhelmed with this situation, and he said, Woe is me, for I am an un a man of unclean lips, and a nation of unclean lips. It didn't mean he went around cussing. It just meant that he spoke. He didn't have the... Uh, they hadn't been speaking of the glory of God. And most, church, most of the churches I know of don't do that. They don't know how to speak about it. And so he saw things that astounded him. And he said, Woe is me, for I'm an unclean man of unclean lips. And God, in essence, said, Okay, we'll take care of that. And he sent an angel down with a tongue. And this is all figurative now. You understand that, don't you? This is not literal. This is figurative. The Bible is full of figurative language. The Lord said, I'm the door of the sheepfold. Did that mean that he was rectangular? And had a doorknob and a lock on it. I mean, get a hold of yourself. The Bible's full of fig figurative language. There's a beast rises up out of the sea in, in Revelation, the 13th chapter, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, them, that beast and the he seven heads and ten horns has a definite meaning, but the picture is a symbolic picture. It's not literal, it's not real. 
But those things represent something in what's being told there, see? <laughs> so here, uh, uh, number one, this act of consecration is a voluntary act because he says present yourselves. That's your job. It's voluntary. Nobody's forcing you. You've got to decide to do this. Present yourself. Number two, uh, it is a personal act. He said your bodies. Present your body. It's your body. Present it to God in service to God. And then he says number three, it's a sacrificial act. And he said it this way. He said it's a living sacrifice. We're going to discuss those points in a minute. It's not a dead sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice you offer of something you have. It's you yourself becomes the sacrifice. And makes it very significant. And so the act of consecration involves a thing that is voluntary, number one. It's personal, number two. And it's sacrificial, number three. <clears throat> and there's been no presentation of body without those three things. There's been no consecration. There's been no presentation, actually. And so there's no voluntary sacrificial presentation of one's body. And therefore, there is before God a living sacrifice. As long as you live, as long as God gives you air to breathe, as long as He uh, maintains your life, you offer it as a living sacrifice. Today, tomorrow, the next day, until the day you close your eyes in death. Hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> Most sacrifices are temporary because of their nature. This one is permanent because of its nature. This is a permanent sacrifice. It is continuous because of its nature. These three things that I mentioned makes the sacrifice continuous. Since it is voluntary, personal, and sacrificial, that's why it is a living sacrifice, as long as you live. It's what is called in college circles and other circles where they raise money. It's called a living endowment. And so there is presented here a living endowment. The endowment goes on is the point. It's not a one-time gift to be used uh, any way it can be used, but it is one that lives and grows. As you offer your body a living sacrifice, it's not only a sacrifice that continues, but it grows in its ability. You think God's going to let you just remain uh, a babe? No, He's going to lead you to maturity, to stability. And again, that's what Peter said very simply in 1 Peter 5, verse 6 through 11. In verse 6, he said, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. And then when he got to verse 11, he clarified that a little bit. He said, After you suffered a while, and are you going to suffer as a Christian? Yeah, Peter says, If any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. You're going to suffer. But your suffrage as a Christian is pretty light, isn't it? Because what did Jesus say about the suffrage of this world and the burden of this world? Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Boy, have you ever considered the yoke of the world and the burden the world puts on you? 
If you're worldly, and so here's a sacrifice that lives and grows. The sacrifice actually becomes greater as the days go by, and that's because of what we call maturity. And by sacrifice, and I, I, uh, I don't mean what is demanded of us, I mean what benefits God. What will benefit God? I mean presenting my body as a living sacrifice unto God enables me to grow and benefit unto Him in His service. And that's the idea of a living sacrifice. Most sacrifices are worn out in the using. This one grows in the using, don't you see? Most sacrifices end in death. This one continues in life, eternal life. All right. Then there's the argument for consecration uh, in verse 1c. Notice we've got three powerful points that we haven't left the first uh, verse yet. That's how powerful, how potent this, this very verse is. I beseech you in view of the mercy of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So there's the appeal. Why should I present my body? Well, it's in view of God's mercy. It's because of His mercy. There's there's the act, what it is, voluntary. It's personal and it's sacrificial. Well, what's the argument? It's rational, reasonable, spiritual. I don't care which translation you read. I like all these words. Some translation says your spiritual sacrifice. Some say your reasonable sacrifice. The King James, I think it is, uh, says your King James does say reasonable, doesn't it? And there's another translation that says your rational sacrifice, and all that's fine. The word means it is an according to your reasonable, uh, your reason service, as you reason out your service to God. We don't all have the same opportunities. We don't all have the same abilities. We don't all have uh, everything that everybody else has to offer, but we do have something to offer. And what he's talking about is your reason service. It is your service which is according to reason. It's yours according to reason service. Now, it doesn't mean that it's reasonable in the sense that it's only logical to do this, but the argument is it is that which involves reason and which reason demands in view of the mercies of God. It is a sacrifice. Then that is a reasonable service or reasoning service rather than an unreasoning sacrifice. Now we'll discuss this in a minute. Reasoning and unreasoning sacrifices. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> Irrational sacrifice is what they had in the Old Testament, both from the point of the animal sacrifice and the point of the uh, of uh, the uh, uh, the sacrificer. If the animal could speak, being offered as a sacrifice, what would he say? He'd say, "Pardon me, but except for the." honor involved, I don't really want my throat slit. And so that was not a reasonable sacrifice. He just really couldn't see the wisdom of that. The animal couldn't. And David said that from a human viewpoint, by inspiration, he couldn't see the wisdom of it either in the 51st Psalm. Because here's what he said when he prayed to God over his sin with Bathsheba. He pleaded with God to forgive him, and he said this, Sacrifices and offerings thou wouldest not, else would I give them. And so David said, if you wanted 10,000 bulls, I'd offer them. But that isn't what you want. And yet he commanded it. 
we're going to see in a moment, I've got to jump ahead of myself here, we're going to see that those sacrifices was a remembrance of sin. That's all it was to you and me, to those people back under that first covenant. And so from the animal viewpoint, uh, and from man's viewpoint, there's no reasoning in that kind of a sacrifice. There was no reasonableness in believing that this is what God really wanted. He didn't want, really want this. Did, uh, did God tell him on one occasion that he really, uh, what he really wanted, it, uh, what he wanted? Micah 6, verse 6 through 8 will tell you about what God wants. He showed me, he showed thee, O man, what is good. And thousands of rams and ten thousand rams of oil is not what he uh, he showed them was good. And so in the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices offered were unreasonable. Now Paul says this is a reasonable sacrifice here. It's different. Uh, so uh, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices offered there were unreasonable. They were illogical, and they were irrational sacrifices. Well, why did God order them then? Because he did order them. He wanted to keep them aware of sin, that sin hadn't been paid for yet until Calvary. And that would be 4,000 years off from Adam and Eve, 2,000 years ago. And that, and that it, uh, and that's it, wasn't it? In order those, in uh, in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance made of sin year by year by year. That's what we learned in Hebrews 10 and verse 3. Those sacrifices reminded those people they had a problem with sin as they awaited the day of Calvary, when that one-time sacrifice would be offered. <clears throat> All right, so uh, man in this case is doing the remembering is the idea, and those animal sacrifices caused him to remember that he was still under the bondage of sin and would be till the perfect sacrifice came, the Lamb of God which John said takes away the sins of the world. So he said, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, in Hebrews 10. And man's conscience cannot be clean. Remember us studying that in Hebrews 10? Else would they not cease to be offered. That's what the Hebrew writer said. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance made of sin. And that's a quotation, Hebrews 10, that we've already studied. Now, I like the Revised Standard Version translation of that. It says, in those sacrifices, there is a, remember, uh, a reminder of sin. And that's what the Greek text says. Man is reminded of his sin by the sacrifices that he offered. And so it uh, and so it made sin present, complete, abundant. But now in this sacrifice, it's one that involves the reason. It's a reasonable sacrifice. This sacrifice involves the reason. It involves the rational aspect of man because he reasons to himself of the mercies of God. We sing a song that does that reasoning. I forget the name of it. Uh, uh, the last part of it says, uh, when the end comes, then I'll know just how much I owed. I owe. And teach me, Lord, now while I'm on the earth, uh, how much I owe get the name of the song. And so therefore, it is a reasonable sacrifice. We do not sacrifice irrational animal flesh, but we sacrifice rational human spirit. 
And that's what this sacrifice is calling for. Rational human spirit. I've got to sit down and look at the mercies of God. And I've got to personally present myself available unto God and to consecrate myself to the holiness that He expects and to the service that comes as a result of that. So when He said, present your bodies, did He mean your bodies only? I mean by that, how could that easily be translated? Present yourselves as being sacrifices. A lot of brethren present their bodies on Sunday morning, but they don't present their bodies as living sacrifices. They just got their butt in the pew. That's all you can say for them. And so he's not saying wear yourself out. He's not saying burn out quickly when he said present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's yourself, your rational being. So that's the argument for the sacrifice, is that it is a rational thing. It's only reasonable that you offer unto God this sacrifice in presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. It's only reasonable. He's not asking too much of you in view of his mercies toward you. He's a God that because of his infinite love, he demands, that love demands our obedience, our compliance, our service, our praise, our glory, our presentation of our praise and honoring. And then, thirdly, he discusses the first part of verse 2, the attitude that's involved in that sacrifice. First of all, is, uh, he presents the negative and then the positive. He says, do not be uh, conformed according to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. <coughs> and so what's the thing that, uh, that's uh, transformed? The mind in that text, the mental state of man. Because what governs your body? What brings you to services? What causes you to act and react? Your mind. And so when he's talking about you present your bodies a living sacrifice, uh, and the fact that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, so the mind in that text, he said, do not have the mind set of the world but have the mindset of the Spirit, as he said in Colossians 3 and verse 12, and other passages like it. Somebody turn over to Colossians 3, 12 and read it real quick. <coughs> Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you. There you go. Oh, you might, might want to write that passage down, take it home, and look at it a little longer. There's many other passages like that. Now the word conformed, the word con means with. And so he says, don't be formed with the world. Is the world looking to form you? Yes, they are. Do you suppose maybe the kindergarten and the school system and the college system wants to conform you? Yes, they do. With their philosophy about life, about marriage, about abortion, about all the issues that faces man upon the earth. And because they use human wisdom, they've already screwed up right there, haven't they? All right, so it says conform. The word con means with, and so he says don't be formed with the world. The idea of a form is a graphic figure. Uh, I don't care whether it's a form that the thing is delivered to, or whether it's the form that delivered to the thing. Uh, remember Romans 6? 
There's two different forms, uh, but comes out of the same way. With a butter mold or a butter form, you deliver the form to the substance to be formed. But what does it do to every bit of the butter? It makes it like it, like it, uh, doesn't it? Same form pressed upon the butter makes the butter alike. And the other kind would be a tire mold or tire form into which you deliver the thing to be formed. And you pour the rubber into the mold and out comes the tire. And so what determines, however, the shape? Well, the form, the mold, the thing poured, uh, that doesn't determine the shape, does it? And so the thing to which it is poured, or the thing which pressed upon it, determines the form. And he says, be not conformed to this age of man, but rather be you transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Studying the word of God. Learning the principles, the precepts, and the morality of God and the requirements of God, the law of God. And so he says, don't be formed with the world, or don't let the world put its stamp on you. Uh, don't let the world press upon you, or don't you be poured into the world's form. Don't be conformed according to this world, but be transformed. That's a total different idea. Now the word there has nothing to do with a mold. Has nothing to do with a form or a mold uh, that's pressed or something into which you are poured. But the word there means the thing itself as to what it is in all of its es essential characteristics. The word formed, that is the word transformed. Yeah, that's in the word transformed is the word uh, Marthea. It means all of the essential characteristics that makes a thing what it is. All right, if we're to be transformed, we're to be transformed in the likeness of God. Doesn't the scriptures teach that in many places? <clears throat> when you talk about this paper having the form of a book, that same paper could have uh, the form of a cup. What makes it a book rather than a cup? It is the paper that made it a book rather than a cup. Or was it the paper that made it to be in all of its essential characteristics of a book? Somebody made it into the form of a book. Now, if this paper that is now in the form of a book is taken by somebody else, and done some things to, to it and comes back in the form of a cup, what happened? It's been transformed. It has changed its essential characteristics so that he says, uh, what he says is this, do not be pressed into the world's mold, but instead be changed in all of your essential characteristics. And that's what God expects of us. A change in all of our uh, our essential characteristics. Now, isn't that more powerful than trans uh, translation? You see, words do have power, don't they? So he says, do not be pressed into the world's mold, but be changed in every essential characteristic that you have by the renewing of your mind. Now it's an interesting point, and it's also a preachable point that the world, uh, the word metamaper, uh, that is here translated uh, transform. That Greek word has been translated into the English to make the word metamorphosis, which discusses the change, like a change when the caterpillar on a nice day in the fall, crumbles up on a leaf or a log or a fence post, and he weaves a cocoon about itself and dies and becomes a sticky, gooey, black or orange or green thing that you see when you break it open. 
But if you don't break it open, and on the beautiful spring day, uh, the cocoon top breaks, and the thing starts wiggling out, and no longer is it a caterpillar, but a, mo a monarch butterfly. Now, nothing about that beautiful look, uh, beautiful, uh, excuse me, nothing about that butterfly looks like that stuff in the cocoon. And nothing like that butterfly looks like that caterpillar. Nothing, absolutely nothing except the butterfly has a little bit of green in it. What took place? Well, that's what they call a uh, metamorphosis, a change, a complete change. And that's what's called on here of the Christian. In view of the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. All right, that's what ought to take place in the life of every single individual who has presented himself as a living sacrifice unto God. There's got to be a change made. A person in the world ought to be able to see it. You know, the question is asked, if you was on trial for being a Christian, would there be an evidence, enough evidence to convict you? That's pretty serious thinking, isn't it? Now, the only difference in the illustration uh, is that externally you look the same, but your friends know better. So you don't make a change like a butterfly into, or from a worm to a butterfly, but that external change, but there's an internal change in there, and your friends know. Whatever happened to Charlie? He's an old stick in the mud now. He's not what he used to be. We used to have a lot of fun, not anymore, with Charlie. He changed, you see. It was a metamorphosis took place. <clears throat> well, what happened to Charlie? You call it metamorphosis. You call it being transformed. If the only difference between the, the time the fellow went into the baptistry and the time he came out of the baptistry is dampness, if that's all he got, then he was not transformed, was he? He just got wet. Now, there may be some time between the baptism and the radical change. That's true. And that's all right, too. Because baptism is not ordained by God to make a rational change. In, in, uh, it's ordained by God to remit sins, and we need to remember that. this written to anyway? To Christians. Well then Christians can present their bodies and live in sacrifice. Maybe they've been baptized and understood what that is all about in remitting sins, but maybe they've never been fully transformed. They just got wet. Repentance is a constant thing, isn't it? And this is a constant thing. It's a constant presentation to God. And so when you was baptized, it just remitted sins. And there may be a little time off for your maturity to grow to understand Romans 12, 1 through 3, where you will present your body a living sacrifice. But that's expected of you. God is waiting for that tree. You're called a tree by Jesus. You're his planting. And he's expecting some return. I mean, he's offered his love, his patience. A father expects a little return, doesn't he? He loves his family, provides for them. And when he gets home, he expects his wife to uh, at least give him a kiss on the cheek or something in appreciation. And he gives her one in appreciation also. And the kids particularly understand the mercies of Almighty God. Uh, or of their father and we do of God also because we claim him as our father in fact uh, I forget where it's at but God asked the Jews a question one time 
He said, if I'm truly your father, where's, where's, uh, where's my thanksgiving? Where's the, the thanks in this if I'm your father? You claim me to be your father, and yet you have no regard for me at all. I forget where that's at. And then, uh, this would be, I didn't write it in my notes, but... Uh, Number five, the achievement of that consecration. That's stated in verse 2b, the last part of verse 2. He says, Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That you may prove that good and perfect uh, and acceptable will of God. What is he talking about? Well, this is the achievement of that transformation that you're to be transformed into or that consecration uh, uh, in discernment. When a person has been consecrated by the act of presenting his body and his attitude in that of transformation rather than uh, confirmation, then he's able to discern what is good and perfect and acceptable will of God. He quits asking questions like, well, what's wrong with it? Or, who said I can't? Uh, but he begins to ask questions like, is it excellent? Is my actions excellent here? Is my doing what I have a right to do excellent and for the benefit of everybody? And would Jesus really have me do it? That's the way your questioning will go when you fall into conformance. But he begins to ask questions like, is it excellent? And would uh, Jesus really have me do it? And would it be the best thing for me to do? Will it advance the kingdom more than this will advance the kingdom? And so we have a questionnaire to look at in view of the mercies of God, as to whether we're going to fulfill a right that we have to do. Uh, see, he begins here with the ability to tell the difference, not only between right and wrong. Uh, that doesn't take discernment, does it? That just takes reading. I mean, uh, that God has made that so plain that a fellow with half an eye and one sense can see that that's the way it is. Uh, this is right and that's wrong. It's written and we know that. But the problem that's being discussed here is in the area of the right. What is the area of the right would be right for me to do? What in the area of right would be right for me to do? There's things I have a right to do that maybe out of love for someone else I wouldn't do it because it might offend them. All right? That's where discernment takes a hold, isn't it? Discernment takes hold about, uh, about what in the area of legal right. It, uh, uh, the legal, uh, would it be right for me to do? Because I have a right to do something doesn't prove that it is right for me to do it. I want to read that again. Uh, because I have a right to do something doesn't prove that it is right for me to do it. And Paul will really uh, take a hold, uh, talk about that in chapter 14 and 15. Uh, we defend our actions a lot of times by our rights. Anybody that got the right to do anything he wants to uh, has the right to forfeit any right. We don't often talk about the right to forfeit rights, do we? Uh, no, we don't. We normally talk about what I've got a right to do. Nobody tells me what to do. Love ought to. Love ought to tell us. And if we love one another, there's times when we will forfeit our right to do something. 
All right, the best right you have is the right not to do things. The most usable, the most beneficial, and the most practical right that God has given you is the right to forego any right that you have. <coughs> Paul said in one case, he said, I've become all things to all men. Well, what's he doing there? He's given up his rights. Uh, it is right to, uh, is it right to give up your rights? Sometimes it's wrong not to. Uh, who's obligated to give up their rights? The weaker brother or the stronger brother? Think about that one a minute. The weaker brother can't even do, uh, do it. Uh, so the stronger brother is obligated to give up his rights on behalf of the weaker brother. If he has any love for his weaker brother, there's things that, uh, that you will, uh, out of love, you'll give up your right to do. Like Paul talked about meats. He will forego that which he has every right to do. Uh, did Paul have a right to be supported by the Corinthians? Yeah. But he said, I'm not going to forego it for your sakes and others. Uh, he had a right to do it, though. He had a right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, too, didn't he? Yeah. But he stated, I won't do it anymore if it will cause my brother to stumble. If it's going to cause one brother to stumble and fall, I, I can get by without eating any meat, he said in Romans 14. And so the ability to discern among the legal what is good and acceptable and perfect comes through the act of consecration when you consecrate yourself to God. If I've given myself totally to Jesus, then I'm able to do that. If I'm not, if I haven't, then I won't be able to do that. But it's a total surrender or it's nothing. You can't half surrender to the Lord. It's a total surrender. And in that total surrender, you'll be able to forfeit a right for a brother because you have learned the love of God. You've learned because of the mercies of God. You have a few of the mercies of God. Does he love your neighbor? Does he love that guy that you can't stand? He certainly does. He gives him life, breath, and all things. Isn't that what Paul told the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17 about that God they ignorantly worship? He's the one that gives life and breath to all men. What about that ugly neighbor? Yeah, he's giving life and breath to him because he loves him. If I'm going to be like my Lord and follow my Father and my Lord, what will I do? I'll learn to love him. I'll love him. I won't love the things that he does. I won't love the things he says to me. But I'll love him because he's a soul created in the image of God. And God is waiting patiently for his metamorphosis, his change. Well, that's all I've got to say for this evening, and that brings us to the end of our rope here. Now, I don't suppose that you got much out of that, and that's not the point. We come together and we talk about things, and this is what we talked about tonight, was this practical application of our uh, spiritual sacrifice <coughs> our bodily sacrifice which involves a spirit <coughs> I beseech you God Paul didn't say I command you he was an apostle he could have said that I command you by the authority that I'm speaking from that you better conform no I beseech you in view of the mercy of God to do what, Paul? To present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this age of man, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may be able to prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Isn't that beautiful? As it speaks to our response, our response to God because of His mercy. Let's stand while we sing our closing hymn. 128. One hundred and twenty-eight. All kind of call on you to close this morning prayer for me now. What is today? Today's nineteenth. So.